0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI.
1: I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
0: Lying on your back in the garage.
1: You can't see a thing
0: except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song.
1: Higher and higher,
0: filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's prosperous. Thank you very much.
1: cause you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears with your mind, and allow me to take you back on force through time, to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't, further down the line. morning, Rick.
0: Good morning, Tonio.
1: It's wonderful to have you back again this week.
0: <laughs> I'm so excited to have another conversation. There's so much to talk about.
1: There is, and I think we could go on for weeks and weeks.
0: Well, that might be pushing it pretty hard, but it's, just, it's such a rich conversation, and I'm so glad that you're really already in the terrain so we can have such a good conversation.
1: Yes, and I enjoyed last week's conversation so much.
0: Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. It, of course, you know I reflect on that, and then I was thinking, well, you know enough with the current events, I, I still we still want to get into you know some of the more the the soulful stuff, you know the chapters that are resonating for you from the book and all those things that are happening in your own life and how you know how are those things all playing out?
1: Yes, and also to get into your experience and how you got into all of this Uh uh-huh and the work Uh that you do and so again i'm gonna begin by introducing you again my guest is rick halterman he's a photographer musician african dance teacher a jazz dj at a local radio station in taos new mexico he's a writer and the director of the association of noetic practitioners and He's the author of this wonderful book, Curriculum of the Soul, which won a gold award from the Nautilus Book Awards for the best book in the personal growth category. And having read it, I can say that I totally understand getting that award. I mean, it really deserves that.
0: Did you make it all the way through the book now, Tonyo?
1: Um, Not quite this morning. I actually read part of the Soul Life chapter, which I think is the next to last chapter.
0: Yep. So you should be getting an award for having made it through <laughs> so much of the book because as you know it's a big book and, and you know, and I recommend in in the introduction for since it is such a daunting size, for people to select the chapters that might be most resonant in their lives at the moment.
1: Yes, it's a it's a wonderful book to just open up wherever you want to, and whether you want to start by, you know, working and reading about the issues that you think you want to deal with, or to just randomly open it up and bibliomance your way through the book.
0: Exactly, exactly. So, in fact, it was just last night I was speaking with with my mother, who You know, she she just has discovered, uh, you know, this new technology. There's a hearing aid company. I think they're out of Belgium. But they make hearing aids that can tie into your iPhone. So she calls me on the iPhone, and then the iPhone directly transmits to her hearing aids. And in the midst of this conversation, first, there's this greater sense of connection. There's one chapter in the book. And then we were talking about situations, and particularly with a sibling in my own life. And she was asking me about about grace this idea of grace and i was and it really got me thinking and actually i have to thank you tonio because due to these conversations that we're having it's gotten me back to looking at my own book and and rereading some sections and it's interesting because i don't think of it so much as mine anymore it's like a child that has been born and is out in the world so i can go to it now and not think of it as you know like so much related like oh i did this or whatever i just look at it and see it more as a resource so anyhow i go into the chapter i remember it was the beginning of the chapter on surrender and i was looking for this definition i come up with grace and there it was and i thought oh how wonderful so i could explain this to my mother and i believe the sentence is grace is the field created through the blessings of divine love and surrender is the gate to get into that field So it really, I'm always kind of amazed how these little subjects keep cropping up almost on a daily basis, really, in all of our lives.
1: Could you say that line again?
0: Sure. Grace is the field created through the blessing of divine love. And I guess another way to explain, because this is an interesting concept, and really this is uh, you know, this is one of the under, underpinning places of the whole curriculum of how do we get to this place of grace in our lives? And, of course, one can refer to the song Amazing Grace, which most of us know. But how do we get to this place where everything's flowing in our lives and not flowing from more that egocentric point of view that says, oh, you know, I just received the award or I've just been acknowledged for this or you know, any of that kind of stuff, but where it really is flowing, where literally every event, every person you encounter, you know, it might even be like, oh, well, the traffic is working out today, you know, driving my car, whatever. That All of this stuff is flowing, and almost a kind of lightness will come about in, um, in, in relation to all of this. So I think that was part of the intent, maybe unconsciously, when writing the book, was this idea of, how do we get to this place of grace? Because it's not really taught in our schools at all, That this idea. Uh, we're really, you know, school is that whole kind of indoctrination into how we'll be, we be good citizens, maybe, you know, for, foremost as you know, citizens in a capitalist culture than in a democratic culture, but hopefully democracy will rise back up again. But grace, just in the sense of Having our lives flow and, and maybe getting enough tools so that should we, for instance, get into a relationship with another human being, that we'll have the tools to somehow work, work that relationship gracefully. In fact, I remember once being in a relationship years ago, and, and this person presented, there was, in fact, something online, which is called the State of Grace Document, and it was in relation to being in a relationship. And what does one do when you feel like you're out of your state of grace. And usually suffering is, is the easiest gauge for that. And, and what do we do to get back? Or well, you know, another way to put it, I remember once at a, at a reading for the book, I was, I was saying, you know, if there was a simple way to describe this book, if you boil it all down to one idea, even though there's many, many, many ideas in there, the idea is, well, if we all fall out of our loving to speak, i.e., we all fall out of our state of grace. And knowing that that's simply going to be the case of being a human being on this planet, what do we do to get back to that loving? What do we do to get back to that state of grace? And, of course, it gets very individual for every person on the planet.
1: So what you're talking about is like being in harmony with the world.
0: Exactly. Exactly. In fact, Here's a quote, and I don't even know where it is in the book, but here's a quote that I just adore, and this may be one of the great quotes. I think you'll understand this, especially with not only your own life, Tonyo, but where you happen to physically live. This is a quote from Gregory Bateson, who's an anthropologist, and it's just one sentence. The major problems of the world are the result of the difference between how nature works and the way people think.
1: I just read that this morning.
0: <laughs> and what did you think when you saw that?
1: Um, to me, that is almost so obvious, and yet it's something that, that we tend to miss most of the time, I think.
0: Oh, I think you're absolutely right, because I guess the way that I was perceiving this, I, I was doing another essay at another point in the last few years, and I was thinking about the, just the population of the United States around 1950, about half of the population lived in rural areas, and half were in what's now called metropolitan areas. And since that time, we now have over 80% of the United States population lives in metropolitan areas, meaning 50,000 people or greater, and the rest are in rural areas. And so to me, there is kind of a disconnection with the natural world and this is not to say there's anything wrong with the urban world, but when we've gotten, like, here's, here's an interesting example. I remember reading, uh, this was in the New Yorker a few years ago, and I don't have, for instance, a smartphone. I certainly have a computer, but I don't, so I'm not familiar with the world of apps or anything. But anyhow, they talked about a particular app is now available that tells one when to drink water. <laughs> and I was astonished when I read that, that someone would actually have to refer to an app rather than simply refer to what's happening inside their own bodies, which to me was a further indication of that disconnection I'm talking about.
1: Boy, that is such a radical example of that. (laughs) Isn't it wild? (laughs) (laughs) And getting back to that nature of, I mean, that, that, that notion of being in harmony with the world—that's something that—that's um, that—it's a common theme throughout the Dao De Jing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what that's all about—is—is is how to align our lives to be in harmony with the world. We, you know, when they when they talk about heaven and earth, they're really talking about the integration. Of, of all that is, all the different levels of, of our our being and, and our lives, including, the soul life, which, as you, put it in a different way, is something that we don't learn about and we don't really know how, to do in this world.
0: Yeah, it's not taught, and I'm glad you brought up the Tao Te Ching. There's, there's a friend who. I'd actually, I didn't even know him until he bought the book, and, and, and then he invited me up to call around and visit with him, and he's a, he's a huge fan. In fact, his favorite writing is Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. And the thing that I really loved about his perspective in relation to what I was writing, he said, you know, in the Tao, basically, it has to be simple, Um, It said the simplicity is really what shows its effectiveness and how well it works. Once it gets complicated, you kind of fall out of the Tao. You get into really sort of mental constructs and those sorts of things. But the Tao, just like nature, really just does it quite simply. Although, you know, when you think about nature, one of the things I adore about nature is that it is all of this diversity this incredible diversity that it's sort of like the cooperation of chaos. And, yes, there are predators, and, yes, there are diseases and all these things happening, but if one spends any time in the woods or out in nature, there is a real serenity to it. And I think that's what the people involved with the Tao Te Ching are always feeling, is how do we mimic that serenity, Uh, you know, biomimicry, (laughs) in a sense, so how do we mimic that serenity and bring it into our own lives?
1: Right. Embodying the, the nature of the, of the entire cosmos in our being.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I think there's been a point that's been made in the past related to this, which is, as we keep losing wilderness out there, and it's getting, you know, like the burning of the forest and the Amazon, things like that, that it's actually a metaphor for the, the losing of the wildness inside each of us and that wildness is a very essential part and very much a part of who we are as human beings.
1: Yes, and a- another element in that first that opening line that you read about grace and the field is that is the notion of the field it's it's a it's a conceptualization of well, I would love to hear you describe it
0: now there are many fields we could be talking to zero-point field which gets into quantum physics and that's the whole terrain in itself in which you know from that perspective everything is really just information and energy literally everything on this planet including us of course and when it's when you put it down to that level then one can really start to see there is a real interconnectedness with all of this that's going on. Then, of course, there's Rumi's field. You know, in the beginning, in the introduction, I have, you know, his lovely short poem. You know, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there, and I'll just finish the poem it's very quick. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase "each other." doesn't make any sense. So there he's really covering a lot of ground in a very short poem. You know, first he's talking about the world of dualism, the right-doing, wrong-doing, which tends to be our ego-centered world right now. Uh, You know, whether, you know, are you Republican, are you Democrat, are you for this issue, are you against this issue, all that kind of stuff. Well, the field of the soul really doesn't consider dualism because it all exists within that field. And you know, and I love you know within the poem when he says, you know that the world is too full to talk about because everything is literally included in that field.
1: Right. So he's integrating both concepts. The exactly, which is so beautiful.
0: <laughs> exactly, and I think that's why that poem resonates so well because it is, it's you know imagine two people say in a relationship and they're arguing. And if one had the presence, you know, to, to simply, you know, like recite just the, the first lines of that poem and say, you know, out out beyond ideas of right-doing and wrong-doing, uh, you know, there's a field, I'll meet you there. It would immediately, I mean, I would hope that it would, it would like, pause the argument for a moment and say, so what's the field that we're trying to enter that we can't because of our right-doing and wrong-doing attitude?
1: Right. It's like, it's, it's I think of that that line from the Bible about you know, it's easier for a, a camel to go th- through the eye of a needle than somebody carrying all their baggage.
0: Yeah, and well, I think I've intellectual baggage. Intellectual, but also they even talked about all their wealth. Right. You
1: know, that's that that's it. what the quote is, but but here I'm I'm adapting it.
0: <laughs> yep. To exactly. What we're talking and I about. and you're I think you're exactly right talking about. That idea of once our brains get too in the way, then I'm then, um, and, and, you know, and I know this from a very first-hand point of view because as part of my thing when growing up, of course, there was being a third child and, and I was able to somehow end up with this sort of in, this interesting ability to observe everything because it was all happening around me. But we also, and I know this is the case with me and my siblings, we all ended up with a pretty strong mental capacity because that was the only way that we could participate in the relationships in our family. So I have to really caution my own self. which happens all the time in terms of, oh, Rick, you're getting stuck in your head here. Let's not do that. What are we going to do to get out of there?
1: Mm-hmm. Or at least ground it. Remember to, yeah. to ground that, that thinking process.
0: Yeah, because... You know, it's interesting. This is in relation. We haven't talked about this, but you know, the cover to the book, Tonyo. This is a photograph I took with a, a fifty-dollar Yashica camera way back when, when I was first actually when I just left Vermont and was in the Land Rover that I still own, nineteen seventy Land Rover. And this was at a reservoir out in Colorado. And the reason why I chose this particular image, and this is in relation to what you just said, was that I wanted to have the four elements in visually in there. That is, earth. Fire, air, and water, and air, of course, representing the mental, and that's that was perfect when you said, "Well, how do we ground out of the mental and get to this other place?" So that's the earth, and then, of course, water is the emotional, and fire would be the spiritual, or uh, you know, also the fire of transformation. So I wanted to have the whole visual metaphor right there in the cover of the book, in terms of how do we integrate these four areas so that we can live. Well, perhaps, as, you know, as full
1: a life as possible. As full and as harmonious. Yes. And yes. I think with age, wisdom, we accumulate the ability to, to live in harmony with more and more elements of the greater cosmos.
0: And like last week, when you were mentioning, for instance, you had quoted Gergie's which mm-hmm. was quite lovely when we, were, when we were in that part of the conversation. But I was noticing, you are you know, you're doing the very things that, that, you know, I was doing in my own book. And I think, hopefully, people are doing this on their own, which is how do we keep finding these little pieces of wisdom as we go along and, and of course, learning through our experience to create our own curriculum. So I, it seems like you have been doing this all along anyhow, Antonio.
1: yes. It started very early for me in ways that were totally beyond my comprehension, and therefore I didn't even question it or think anything of it. I never spoke to anybody else about it when I was a child, but I was having these very unusual experiences that I, because I was an only child and, and didn't get to talk to anybody about any of it, and I generally didn't talk to anybody about much of anything, being an only child of a a broken family. Um, I didn't question things, so later in life I really learned to question everything and, and to be much more open about talking about literally everything and anything.
0: And are you comfortable to talk about those unusual experiences that you mentioned?
1: Yeah, I've actually spoken of them before. I went through a period roughly around the age of 9 or 10, when I was having various unusual and intense experiences in that state between waking and sleep.
0: hyp—is it called the hypnopompic um, state, which is between, oh no, waking and sleep is a hypnagogic, I think
1: it is. Yeah, yeah, the hypnopompic is when you're waking up. And the hypnopompic experience is, I had a lot of those at the time, too. Like, I would have this experience of falling and slamming into my bed and actually viscerally feeling like I was bouncing back up. And that was a hypnopompic experience.
0: Fascinating.
1: Because that was from sleep to waking. But I had most of my experiences in the hypnagogic state. And the most intense one was becoming aware in this deep, deep state of darkness and having this very powerful impulse to come out of it and so i would i had this sensation of to rocket my being up through these layers of darkness and then i would literally physically leap out of bed gasping for breath and it happened almost every night for a period of time
0: oh that's so interesting and tell me when you were in that very dark place was there um, a frightening aspect or not to
1: it it was purely visceral there was no no space for fright or thinking or or story based response it was it was purely a visceral response to it was as if I had died and was no longer breathing or perhaps didn't even have a body and then all of a sudden was finding my way back toward my body and then reconnecting with my body and leaping out of bed. So it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I had a good reason for not talking to anybody about it for so long because it, It was very hard to describe.
0: Well, and who would comprehend? I mean, now it sounds like, and I've read stories, for instance, of people that have had near-death experiences. It's very similar that, you know, like, for instance, the person in the operating room, and the operation happens to be on their heart, and clearly, for whatever reason, you know, the heart has stopped, and they find themselves hovering over themselves in the operating room, But then whatever happens with the actual operation, the procedure, they're like slammed back into their body and wondering like, whoa, what just happened here? That that sort of thing. But you you know what's interesting about your experience is that you clearly were going to some other place on a very regular basis, a place that was not embodied, so to speak, and, and being thrust back into the body as you wake back up that would be the startling event in all and then of course the reflection of where the heck was i
1: mhm and you know i never asked the question of where the heck was i because i had this visceral sense that there was no place that i was at
0: oh interesting that that it was really sort of uh, you know in the old language you no know, limbo or, uh, you know that place between heaven and hell
1: well perhaps but even more like being in that the womb state of of just pure darkness and pure possibility but it wasn't about possibility in this case it was that I was so unfamiliar with this place and and I was just my first sense of awareness was the differentiation between being physically embodied and not being physically embodied and being somehow attached to being physically embodied and being pulled back to that.
0: And let me ask you two other questions related to this. What was what was your feeling once you were awake and back in your body? Was that good, bad? What was that like?
1: It was good because I was back, well is because i would i was you know i gasped for breath as if i you know desperately gasping for breath and i was back in this world i was yeah. alive i was breathing and i was whole again physically
0: mm. you still had these experiences
1: i only had those ex- that experience during that period of my life around the age of 9 or 10
0: fascinating so i guess what i'm wondering here is was this really sort of your introduction to the fact that there are other realities than the one that we perceive with our five senses
1: absolutely absolutely and other experiences i was having at the at the exact same time in that same state more or less hypnagogic space was experiencing some aspect of my consciousness traveling along this infinite kind of strange spiral but it was a very different form but it it was endless Mm -hmm. kind of like there's this endless knot in the tibetan buddhist tradition and i would experience traveling along this endless path and it literally went forever and I would have that experience every night as well. And there was another experience that actually recurred throughout my youth up until I was 18, where I would experience with my eyes closed, I would experience the sensation, the visceral sensation of my body expanding infinitely to the size of the universe. And then I would shrink back down, and then I would shrink way, 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 way down to infinitesimally tiny like subatomic particle size to where I would have this visceral sense and image of being like way out in space viewing what it looks like to see stars light years are, away from me.
0: These are so extraordinary, Tony, that and i think in a certain sense because like if, we, if we connect it to the soul that for instance that you know that sensation you are having of this basically limitless sense of time and i think that's really that if if i was you know if i was to guess at least that's where my imagination goes in terms of the soul That the soul really is that limitless thing and then again that expansion in fact i love that little quote I have at the introduction, C.S. Lewis says, you don't have a, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, mm-hmm. you have a body. Yes. And that the soul is exactly what you're talking about in your second experience, that it has that ability to expand that far, that that many possibilities exist within each and every one of us.
1: Right. And I was being given a taste, a very powerful taste of, that realm beyond just my physical and intellectual experience.
0: Which is really incredible, because I'm not sure how many people have that sort of opportunity. And I imagine probably some would have it and just want to reject it and say, no, this is not of this world. But then to realize that, and I think this is where a lot of, a lot of new science is coming about, which is basically there are other realities you know like richard bartlett with with uh, matrix energetics you know he talks about and this has been talked about before parallel universes and how they are existing simultaneously and what would be happening in the parallel universe from where we are right now and you know, he uses in his practice of matrix energetics to, you know to help heal people uh, <clears throat> to to enter a parallel universe and say so what if we go over there where this problem doesn't exist. What if we bring that energy into what's happening right here, right now?
1: Mm-hmm. I love so that. It's
0: so fascinating that you had this background which already opened you up more so than I would say probably other people.
1: Well, I've always had the sense that literally anything is possible and that the only thing separating me from that was my was the limitations of my own imagination.
0: And did this... Do you create more of a connectedness with other human beings through these experiences, or did it may, maybe even create kind of a separateness because you were having experiences it was really even difficult, you know, A, to articulate when you were a young person, but also to describe to other people if they hadn't possibly experienced something similar in their own lives?
1: Well, there wasn't an issue of talking to anybody else about it because it just never occurred to me. But in a sense, I would say I had both. I felt very isolated, and yet I also felt, in general, I felt goodwill towards everybody else, a sense of kindness and care. Not necessarily that I expressed it outwardly because I was an introvert, but while other kids... We're doing these horrible things to each other and everybody else. I never had any interest in, in doing any of that. Although, I was told by my parents that I was a, a sandbox bully. Maybe going through that experience helped to get me to shift out of that.
0: Because clearly you're not the sandbox bully anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this is fascinating, this terrain, tonio because it probably has created a certain bonding that will take place with other people that have had not necessarily the same situation, the same experiences, but people that are conscious of other realities. And this, is, this certainly goes back to, you know, our, our larger conversation that we're having here, which is that the soul is having its own reality, whether, you know, we're doing whatever. You know, I could be getting totally involved in my little ego-centered world and the soul is just waiting patiently on the sideline. Or, like, say, a friend who wants to talk about, say, the writings of Ken Wilber, and, and Ken Wilber's quite brilliant, but to me, you know, my soul, I, and I told him this once, he was getting into this whole Ken Wilber thing, and, and I said, I'm just going to be honest with you, my soul is outside walking, looking at the sky.
1: I feel the exact same way. My soul could care less about Ken Wilber as brilliant as he may be, my soul is bored to death by Ken Wilber.
0: Yes. and and that's yeah, that's why you know I included that quote in the uh, in the introduction by um, by Joseph Campbell because Ken Wilber is really all about you know meaning and all this, and, and Joseph Campbell says, and I just adore this quote. People say that we're all seeking what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonances with our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive.
1: That's exactly my experience of that. I'm looking for direct experience. Yeah. Whatever it may be. I mean, yes, it's much more pleasant to have comfortable and, and pleasurable experiences, but it's direct experience. And when you're fully engaged in direct experience, there's no judgment about what's pleasurable or painful or what feels good or what doesn't feel good because it's not a personal thing anymore.
0: Well, you're exactly in a train that we talked about last week, which was Robert Waterman's quote about how the soul makes no distinction between the good, the bad, and the ugly, Mm -hmm. that it's just after that experience. And then, of course, in relation to Campbell's quote, it gets idiosyncratic because what's going to resonate for one person may not resonate for another, and that's totally fine, but that's the real connection. I remember after that very friend who adores Ken Wilbur and he, he kept pushing me about this whole meaning thing and and the next day I, I was in the shower and I came out to breakfast and I was speaking with him I said, "You know meaning is perfect for what the, the mental what the brain wants that and the brain's always looking for that kind of meaning but I said, when you think about the emotional body, the emotional body is really only interested in feeling the physical body is, is interested really in either moving or resting and the spiritual body is only interested in the connection to these larger energies whether you want to call them god the divine whatever So, that meaning is really only just a little sliver of the pie and i don't think you know i don't want to get hung up in that place because then you can just go on forever it's like so what did this conversation mean what did you know it raining outside mean what did it's like, oh, my God, I would exhaust myself quickly. I'd rather go outside and just feel the rain.
1: Mm-hmm. Full immersion.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and be connected to the rain. you know, here when it rains, it's interesting because, it, like, today it is raining, Antonio, and, and it reminds me, you know, the thing I adored about when I was living in Vermont for those few years was that when, when the weather gets bad in Vermont, you really are in an enclosed space indoors, and there was something quite almost embracing about that. Here on the desert, because we have so much sun, it's, you're almost always, at least I am, always outdoors, and when it rains, it's like, oh, I get to be inside, and I have to actually do indoor things today. What a wonderful idea, because I don't get to do that all that often.
1: Hmm. So I had the opportunity to share my story a bit, What's your story? How did you discover the soul life and the mystery of, of the soul? Where did that begin for you?
0: Yeah, I think it probably began, Tonya, when I was young. Um, I wasn't, you know, I, was, I certainly would have these experiences. I wouldn't say anywhere near as intensely as yours, but I would have these experiences. This is around high school, that age, in which I could feel what it was like to be dead. And... There, it wasn't like I was fascinated with death or anything like that, but there was almost this, this sort of sadness of like, oh, life would continue on without me. And, and I even remember writing a paper about this in college, and, and the professor at that time, in fact, the very guy who introduced me to Charles Olson's poem, uh, A Plan for a Curriculum of the Soul, he, he accused me of plagiarism. <laughs> and and I, went, and I went to him after that class, and, and he failed me initially, and I went to him I said, I didn't plagiarize a thing here. I had been thinking about this since high school. And I had a whole bunch of quotes, just like in this book here, you know, in The Criticism of the Soul, a whole bunch of quotes. And he really was, was really quite remiss and ended up, you know, saying, oh, you know, what grade would you like? So anyhow, there were those experiences of... of of that and then also I realized there was a certain point I used to you know I'd still swim a lot but when I was a little kid we all swam so much and I got a a classic case of swimmer's ear and I had two holes in my eardrum a big operation to clean all that stuff up and I was I ended up getting a guitar actually a couple guitars were given for me right after that operation and I was already in love with music I'd already sung out in public quite accidentally at age nine I believe it was and so to the point that I received those guitars, I entered this whole other world in which every day literally after school I would go home, I'd do my homework, and then I would play guitar. And I started getting adept at listening to a piece of music on a record, and then I could go ahead and figure out how to play it on the guitar uh, once I had you know, an, enough vocabulary to be able to pull that off. And I did that all the way through high school. And the thing that was interesting, my parents, who really didn't have any background in, in the arts at all, they really didn't know really quite how to deal with it or understand it. But there I was every day, and I was starting to get, you know, relatively proficient. I was even performing out in public. Not one word from my parents as far as, you know, like, Rick, you could use some help here, or Rick, sounding good. Not one word is as if it didn't even exist. And the thing was, through that world of music, and it was really opening up the emotional world for me, which somehow is just a part of who I am, I was entering this whole other world. And once I was able to enter that world, it's just the doors just kept opening. Then by college, you know, we we were seeing the films of Bergman and Fellini and Bunuel and all these incredible directors, and then we were getting involved with literature they getting, and all these doors just kept opening, opening, opening. All that, from that, it was, for me, the door was music, really. And, and this very interesting thing, you know, when I had that operation on my ear, I remember a friend telling me at the time, he said, you know, he always thought I, I had a little trouble with pitch. And once I had that operation, he said, all that, all that trouble was completely cleaned up. And I thought, how fascinating. again, there was another little teeny tiny piece which was, oh, so maybe there's something good that can come out of these not-so-good circumstances.
1: Or maybe your soul knew what you needed, and, and as you, you say, the soul loves trouble and has many ways of, of um, getting us back on track or, or moving us in, in its direction.
0: Exactly.
1: And often they're chaotic and, and they seem disruptive.
0: Exactly. That, that's exactly right. You know, I remember recently, oh, there was somebody who was talking about a tarot reading that they had out here in Towson. The tarot cards were basically saying, well, you can do it the easy way you can do it is you can do it the hard way. You know, it's your choice, but either way, you gonna, we're going to point you in the direction that you need to go. And I think that's exactly how the soul works. That when we get out of balance, for instance, and it could be through diet, it could be through lack of, you know, paying attention to the emotional life, whatever, the soul is going to redirect us. And it could be, you know, it could be as wild as a heart attack. It could be like, you know, that sibling I spoke about last week, he's going into depression. And, and I keep trying to remind that sibling, I said, this is just the soul simply telling you that things are out of balance, and we want them to come back into balance. And what are you willing to do to make that happen?
1: Right. And if you're not willing to do something, you're going to get forced into it to some degree.
0: You'll get your ass kicked. Right. <laughs> Sometimes harder than others. So all along this, this journey for me, Tonyo, and I think you've been doing your own version of it, is that I think on some level when I was a child, I, really, I wasn't really seen immediately around me. Anybody that would be a living example of, oh, wow, they have it figured out. This is so great, because I would see people struggling pretty much everywhere. And it didn't matter what age, but they were struggling. And I kept wanting to find little pieces along the way that could help in terms of, so what would be a life that would be more close to where we started our conversation today, close to this idea of grace, rather than one that is involved with struggle and constantly, you know, hitting the wall in some fashion. So I think I was always picking up little pieces and then once they got introduced to Joseph Campbell, and I think that was around college, that opened it up. And then now you this will I I think resonate for you. When I first heard John Coltrane's My Favorite Things, it completely blew my mind. And and I realized only later could I articulate it, I realized based on what he was doing during his solo of what was, you know, prior basically a kind of show tune, and he transferred it, transformed it into this jazz piece, that that the universe literally was limitless based on his imagination and what he was doing in that solo, and that absolutely changed my life. So this is what the soul can actually do in living example, that we can actually go to a a record and say, look at that. That's astonishing.
1: And that solo that you're talking about, to me, my sense of it is he's expressing joy, pure joy in that expression.
0: Absolutely. There's that, and for me there's another piece included with that joy, and this is something that I think has made Train that his music will never really go out of style. He has some connection to those larger energies, to the divine, of course. That really came about later when he was recording a Love Supreme. But he has a connection in there that it's so rare that. And I think this is what happens in a lot of spiritual writing. The spiritual writing really, if you know, to me, this I don't know if this is just such a bias on my part. But I really don't think you can have spirituality without art. That art, in whatever form, and it could be good language, for instance, but art is the only thing we have, the the, the language that can describe the ineffable. So here, you know, now here's, here's part of my ego speaking out. There's a part of me that gets a little discouraged because I think there are a lot of people in what's called the spiritual industry doing really great work, and I really admire them but there's a lot of bad writing in that terrain, which really isn't helpful for me. Like, I think of as a good writer in the spiritual terrain is Pema Chodron. She just happens to be wonderful, and so I think that's why she has such a great following. But when I start seeing, and this is, drives me nuts, not only in spiritual terrain, but in, you know, could be the self-help terrain, whatever, as soon as linear thinking is applied to nonlinear concepts, i.e., let me give an example, uh, seven steps to mindfulness, right? All, like that, all
1: those formulas it
0: drives me crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's where again my soul is out the door, going. What does the sage smell like today? Now that it's completely been doused with water.
1: Right. You're talking about the commodification of spirituality.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that's you know that was maybe not really you know an overt intent with my own book, which is like. Well, how can I pull it out of that terrain? And really, because I just happen to think, particularly with spirituality, when it really gets down to it, of course, there's a general thing that I suggest, which is spirituality is really finding the sacred in the ordinary, which is really a lot of work for all of us. But when it really gets down to those connections to the sacred, that it's so personal, and, and I think in a lot of ways quite private, and I, and I get a little turned off with people that want to always make it public about, you know, what their particular connection is. And there's a part of me that kind of recoils, which is, ah, uh, ah, uh, it's like, no, 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 no. You know, it'd be like someone walking out in public and saying, well, this is how I made love to my partner last night. I don't really want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah.
1: Somewhere in the book you write about how People often think that spirituality is separate from the rest of life and separates us from real life, but you make it very clear that true spirituality connects us to reality and and to life.
0: Yes. You know, I, I get discouraged sometimes when I'm out in public. To me, that, for instance, if you're not practicing kindness, and, and this would be in the most of mundane circumstances, whether it's the wait person at the diner, whether it's the checkout person at the grocery store, whether it's the person at the convenience store. If you're not practicing kindness in some fashion or patience or compassion, any of those things in the most ordinary circumstances, you've missed the boat. In fact, I was just speaking with a friend the other day, and she was talking about these Rinpoches that were coming over from Tibet, and they were, of course, here, and they were, you know, doing their teaching and everything, and they really wanted to be teaching mindfulness, but they weren't even capable of opening a door for someone who had their arms full of groceries. I just don't think that's very useful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a huge disconnection somewhere in their practice, in their experience.
0: There's that, and, I, you know, I wonder sometimes, and, and tell me what you think, Tonya, that, because we have gotten so, you know, our culture so promotes us being in our head. You know, the people who are paid most in our culture are the people that are working from the intellect, not, you know, the social workers or anybody like that. So I wonder if there is, as a reaction to that, people wanting to go directly to the spiritual as sort of, you know, their, their, I don't know, maybe misaligned thought, of wanting to counterbalance that overemphasis on the mental and of course getting into the, the emotional and the psychological that's where that whole bypassing thing starts taking place those are the difficult terrains as far as am i going to confront my own anger am i going to confront my own grief am i going to confront my own resentment so that we've talked about this last week so i don't take those things out in public with me
1: Yeah. Being responsible with our own self and experience and relationship with the world around us. And speaking of relationship with the world around us, I'm talking with Rick Halterman. He's the author of this wonderful book where we're sort of talking about Curriculum of the Soul. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. And earlier... Because my approach to all of this is intensely practical. Because if I can't use it in a way that's helpful in integrating all these things and making my life more harmonious and, and making it work in relation to the world around me, then what good is it? And you asked earlier, um, how can we reconnect to that sense of grace? And one thing that we both share one practice that we both share is the practice of Ho'oponopono, which I find to be the simplest approach to reconnecting. The simplest and most effective. I have some other ones that I use when that one, for some reason, doesn't work in a particular situation, but I find that one to be the most universal, most simple, and most effective.
0: And do you want to explain that to the listeners,
1: Tonio? Well, I was sort of wanting to give you the opportunity to do that. (laughs) I mean, I'll just share that, for me, when I do the practice, and I do it in my own way, because I'm I'm assuming that everyone has their own unique way of of applying it, using it. Um, Each time I use it, it literally dissolves everything else and brings me back into direct experience of the present moment.
0: Yes, yeah, the reset. And, yes. And that's, that's perfect for, 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 you know, that's my experience as well. But I'll just give a little bit of background. Ho'oponopono is a Hawaiian practice, and the, the, the translation of the word ho'oponopono represents to make perfect, to make right, and it used to be used as a practice to bring about reconciliation within families that if there was a family member where there was a problem, they would get in front of a practitioner and they would do this thing, and it would really bring about reconciliation. Well, this whole practice got updated by Dr. Hugh Len, and his big story was that in the 1980s he was taking care, or he was, he was hired as a therapist for a ward of criminally, criminally uh, insane men. And, and he, he was one of many therapists that had, joined this ward and 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 a long line of therapists and the men were in chains they were on meds the people who worked at the ward would walk down the halls with their backs to the wall for fear of any violence because i guess there were several acts major acts of violence every day in this ward so dr hugh len shows up He, he was introduced to the men but he never actually had therapy sessions with them and he started I think he went to work about two or three days a week at the ward, and all he would do was he would sit in his office, he would read their files of, of these individual prisoners, and as he read the files, he would say, he would say, I'm sorry I love you. And when asked about, well, well what were you doing, he said, I'm forgiving, I'm cleaning that part of myself that created them. So his whole idea is that we need to take from this perspective, 100% responsibility for what's happening in our lives. Not that, you know, for instance, he created those men, but now that they were in his field, so to speak, that it was his job to clean the energy so that they could, in fact, heal themselves. And it turns out within a couple years, most of the men had been out of, were released and back, leading normal lives. And within another few years after that, the whole place shut down because he had cleaned that energy so well. So he then brought the whole thing forward and said the very thing that you were mentioning, Antonio, that he turned it into this lovely, it's nine words is all it is. And that's why I think when you said the simplicity of it is, the, is right on. All, you, you know, all you're saying is, I'm sorry, forgive me, thank you, I love you. And you can break that down, what this really is, is I'm sorry for whatever I, my ancestors, my genetic line, anybody related to me has done to create this situation that has just appeared before me. Forgive me for what you know, anything in that line I just mentioned did who have created the situation thank you for bringing it up to me so that it can be cleaned and i love you you're saying back to your basic self not to the world but to your basic self but it could imply the world and in essence when i think about this because this is very much created related to the curriculum of the soul when you think of those nine words i'm sorry so immediately you've now entered the world of you know humility and, and surrender boom right away I'm sorry, forgive me. Now you're into forgiveness. These are all, you know, chapters within my own book. Then uh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Thank you. Gratitude. And then I love you. You've now brought all these spiritual tools in concert with each other to take care of whatever this situation is in front of you. This is not to say you're going to get immediate results, but I'll just give you one example, a short one here in Taos, which was I was coming out of the grocery store. Both hands had bags of groceries, and in front of me, in the drive in the parking lot, there was two locals in their old, beat-up truck, just like in town, and they were slowly going to the parking lot, and there was a guy from out-of-state in a big, huge SUV, and he was irritated with how slow the pickup truck was going in front of him. And immediately, the guy in the larger SUV he slammed on his brakes, got out of his car, threw his jacket on the ground, And it was clearly he was going to confront the driver in the pickup truck ahead of him. And I'm standing there with the groceries in my hand. The first reaction was, oh, boy. And then almost instantly, I don't know why, it was a knee-jerk thing, I just said, I'm sorry, forgive me, thank you, I love you. Within Within the blink of an eye, that guy was back in his SUV. The pickup truck was driving along, and everything was fine. And the thing that, particularly in Taos, House is still a little bit like the Wild West. You don't know, for instance, if a local has in their car a machete, you know, a hunting knife, a gun, whatever. This is part of the, you know, living in Taos. And I was thinking this could be some real trouble that's going to happen here. I do that little ho'oponopono thing, poof, and I have no idea, Tonio. Did I have an impact on that or not? I have no idea. I don't want to take that kind of responsibility or even assume because that would be the ego saying, "Oh, I took care of this." No, I have no idea if any of that happened. All I know is it shifted in the blink of an eye, and I was really happy to see the result.
1: Hmm. And I'll just quickly share the way I do it, and then I want to get into talking about that notion of taking. 100% responsibility and what we're taking yeah. responsibility for. Um, my approach is I say, I'm sorry, please forgive me for anything that's arising from within me to create this problem. And usually that's enough. Usually once I have said that, everything dissolves and I'm left in that direct Experience of presence, minus my separate sense of self.
0: That's gorgeous. Really like that.
1: I rarely get to say thank you. I love you.
0: It's, oh, really? It, and, 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 and it just—it's already worked out.
1: It's already worked out. But that's within me. That's yeah. that's my own personal experience of doing it.
0: I think it's whatever works, and I think that's still glorious because you know ultimately. There is, you know, an underlying thing here, which, you know, depending on the person, of course, which is you and I are both on the exact same page as far as acknowledging there are clearly greater energies at work all of the time around us. And we know that, and we've probably known that from the very beginning. There's still a lot of people that are struggling with that idea. And I think, to me, the idea of having surrender to these greater energies, and when we're saying, I'm sorry, forgive me, and and it's like, for whatever I did to create this, that we're really turning over, I mean, it's really the non-ego aspect, the soul is basically saying, hey, I'm just going to turn it over to, you know, to the the people who are really running the show and let them deal with this, and there's such beautiful humility in all of that.
1: Right. I'm going to turn this over, put this in the hands of the divine, in the hands of the universe, because... That's where it is all the time, and it's only my egotistical, my, my limited and temporary egotistical sense that thinks that I am doing anything.
0: Yes. Yes, that's perfect. And you know, even lately, Tonio, I've been doing this you know, while, because you know, I swim laps all the time. Even as I'm swimming laps, sometimes a little tweak, like it could be um, a little cramp in the calf muscle of one leg, or it could be... You know, whatever little tweak is happening in my shoulder as I'm doing whatever stroke it is. I'll even do ho'oponopono to that tweak in my body. And almost always, it works itself out within a minute or two. So, you know, I was, I was explaining to a friend recently that sometimes when a thought of, a say, a previous partner comes up and, you know, there's that ego part of me that would want to get into, you know, whatever awful thing might have happened in that relationship... I said I just really circumvent the whole thing and just go straight to ho'oponopono. It cleans it right away and the thought vanishes.
1: Mhm. Exactly. That's how simple and powerful this technique is. I mean it, it I can totally understand anybody out there who's listening thinking there's no way there's absolutely no way it could be that effective and that simple and actually work.
0: I can hear that uh, You know, on one hand Tonya, on the other hand It's one of those things Here we're now into that interesting place of faith That I do have You know, I have the faith that there are Larger energies I know this on a visceral level I know there are larger energies that work in all of our lives and On this planet And turning it over to those energies To take care of things this seems to me like a very efficient way to, t- to do stuff. Now, there is another level here, and I mentioned this to you in our correspondence, and this gets involved, and I don't think we're going to have time to talk about it at length, but this area of noetic balancing, which really takes upon this idea of ho'oponopono, but then starts to really tailor it to the individual needs of a person. So, like I mentioned last week with our conversation, that we start creating forgiveness statements. I forgive myself for believing. I forgive myself for judging. Like last week when I said, I forgive myself for believing that I need to rail against the world as if it was my father, and that we can really get into our very specific issues and clean them up that way by, you know, basically now turning Ho'oponopono into the, a very specific thing to go after a very specific issue. Because sometimes, as as Dr. Hugh Len would point out, that we're running in our subconscious all of these old tapes, all of the old beliefs that we created when we were children and we're trying to make sense of the world. And the thing that happens in all of our lives as we get older is that those beliefs we created as a child, like I may be like, I'm unlovable or I'm unworthy or whatever it is, they then don't really become very useful when we're adults. They may have been useful to get us to survive our childhoods, but now as adults, it's not particularly useful. So, how do we clean them out? And Ho'oponopono, I think, can get after it, but this, this even can get, I think, you know, it, it approaches it from another level because we get after a very specific thing. I can remember once, I, I can't even tell you the dream I had. But I came out in a meditation, and I decided in the meditation I was going to work on the dream, and I ended up with a forgiveness statement. I forgive myself for believing that someone can love me far more than I think I'm capable of loving myself.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think, like, there was that, you know, that segment that you had sent me of a previous interview that you had done that that man was approaching it from another angle as well that and it's just like bruce lipton's work when he really talks about the three real components going on in our lives are you know there's nutrition there's genetics and there's our beliefs. we can't do a whole lot about our genetics although actually i have my doctor of oriental medicine he's doing what he can to change his dna and it's pretty wild but we won't get into that conversation here we can do something about our nutrition and yes we can do something about our beliefs. And I think it really is undervalued in our culture to realize to the extent our beliefs are truly running the show and, in fact, creating body symptoms when the belief is not coming from a place of love.
1: Mm -hmm. And all those extra genes that geneticists and scientists can't figure out what the use of them are are what actually makes the whole genetic realm an infinite space of possibility, way beyond what they've mapped out to be the, the actual practical functioning of our genes and how they determine our physiology and our, our lives.
0: Well, and the size of what you're describing, I think, is just as you were describing those experiences as a child in terms of the enormity of the universe. Mm-hmm. We're, I, you know, From my perspective, we're barely getting into understanding because there's still that insistence, particularly with Western medicine, on wanting to isolate the physical from the emotional, psychological, and the spiritual. Yes. In some cases, like in the case of my mother's hearing aids I mentioned earlier, it's really working out quite well, and I really congratulate. And Western medicine really is amazing when it comes to trauma care. But there are a lot of other things in Western medicine where they really still have no idea whatsoever. Like just like talking about shingles, talking about depression, talking about things like that. And they're really like, well, we can give you a med, but we still have no idea of how to understand it.
1: Right, or chronic fatigue syndrome. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> yes. exactly. So, Tony, you are know, getting tight on time as always, and I feel like it's been 10 minutes and almost been an hour and 20. <laughs> I know, <it. laughs> I, know, it. I, know it. I feel I, the same I way. I thought, um, you know, and this is not to really wrap things up exactly, but if nothing else, You know, you had mentioned in one of the correspondents, you know, there's this whole chapter I have on connection. Yes. How important that is. And I think Ho'oponopono is actually a piece of that, because we are, in fact, connecting with the world when we're using that practice on a regular basis. And I loved how you said in your correspondence, it literally is like resetting you each and every time you do that, you know, do that practice you know, the I'm sorry, forgive me, boom, You're, it's, the thing is clean, you get to start. It's almost like starting anew in every moment.
1: I think it, it absolutely is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so here we are, you know, and there's a whole chapter on connection, and, you know, this is up to you if you want me to read. There's this prose poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, which is just such a lovely thing. And I, probably, You know, there are times, there I am on the air, you know, Antonio, reading some of these poems, And I have to, like, whisper silent to to myself, keep it together because I'm starting to lose it on the air. And I almost feel embarrassed about doing that because, you know, some of these things, the poems that are in the book, some of them are so touching. They're like great old friends for me. And I go back to them as old friends and, you know, tell me, you know, remind me again what it is that I need to be thinking about. You know, there's that line in Stanley Kunitz's poem, which is somewhere in the book, the poem is called The Layers. That one little line, which still I was thinking about this morning, how does the heart reconcile its feast of losses? Mm -hmm. And to me, this is one of the great human predicaments. How do we get through our days thinking about all the losses we've gone through? Now, on the other hand, if you want me to read this Naomi had night poem, Gay Day 4, I can. It's up to you.
1: I would love for you to read that, but that line that you just said of Stanley Hughes, I have it down here right in front of me, um, and it's such a profound line because it relates directly to the experience, the soul experience that gathers wisdom.
0: Yes. I mean, there's a part of me, my first reaction when I read it, was, my, there was something inside of me that just went, uh... And that was, it was like, oh, you've just asked the big question. You know, there's like, when I was in a blues band way back in college, that there was the end of a line of, uh, the, the, the tune is from Paul Butterfield blues band, and the song is, uh, Born in Chicago, and, and the last verse goes, well, my rules are all right if there's someone left to play the game, because the song is about, you know, friends getting killed on the streets. Well, my rules are all right if there's someone left to play the game. All my friends are going. Things just don't seem the same.
1: Mm -hmm. And life is full of loss. I mean, everything everything we love, everything we desire, everything that's important to us, or at least almost everything, dissolves, disintegrates, changes in ways that, that are out of our control.
0: And now we're back to that very, that Gregory Bateson quote earlier about how, the, you know, the, the most of the problems of the world are created between the, the difference between how nature works and the way man thinks. Nature works totally in the world of change. It ever evolves. I watch how plants migrate around my house based on wherever the sun or the, the circumstances are quite right for it. And I think it's so hard for us sometimes as human because, once, I'd like to say, I might find this moment of happiness, you know, this, this little comfort zone and going, can I please hold on to it? And unfortunately, when I look around and look at those, you know, start feeling the larger energies, they're saying, no, Rick, that's just not how it works. I'm sorry, but we get to move on. And, you know, and I've gotten used to it. Like, I went out dancing last Tuesday night, and there was a band here from Mali, the Song Blues, a bunch of young guys that was like the band Tanari win, but on steroids. And they were driving it hard, and my body hadn't been pushed that way in a long time when I was out dancing, and I just kept going and going to the point of really getting near exhaustion and going, this is great. This is, I haven't felt this alive in a long time, and I get to come home, and it took me hours to get to sleep because I was so filled with that energy, and the next day is like, well... I'm going to keep training, always keep training, always keep doing ho'oponopono, always keep doing something so that when that next opportunity shows up, I can step right up to it.
1: Yep. Or just be there.
0: Yes. If to still be present enough, because that's back to that Hugh Len idea, how much like when doing ho'opono, ho'oponopono, how can I keep silencing all of those subconscious, unconscious tapes inside of me that are telling me that I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy or I'm not lovable or whatever, any of that stuff. And once we get rid of a lot of those tapes, we can be fully present in the moment. And, you know, just between you and me, tonio I'm really tired. I think that the word mindfulness needs a long sabbatical. And that's that, like, let's just be present. That'll be plenty.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, presence is so much simpler especially if you've had a direct experience of it.
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. right. So here's, here's one where presence shows up. If you want me to read this poem because we're starting to run out of time and I don't want you to feel crimped here because I know how it is as a DJ when this goes. Yes. Shall I do this? Yes, please. Hey, this is Gate A4 by Naomi Shihab 9. It's a prose poem. Wandering around the Albuquerque Airport terminal after learning my flight had been delayed for four hours, I heard an announcement if anyone in the vicinity of gate a4 understands any arabic please come to the gate immediately well one pauses these days gate a4 was my own gate i went there an older woman in full traditional palestinian embroidered dress just like my grandma wore was crumpled to the floor wailing loudly help said the flight service person Talk to her what is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. Shubidak, Stani Midfalik, shubitsui. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day, I said, No, we're fine. You'll get there just later. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her, southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while and in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamool cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts, out of her bag. and was offering them to all of the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo. We were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out free beverages from huge coolers, and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice, and they were covered with powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend. By now, we were holding hands. Had a potted plant poking out of her bag. Some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones, and I thought, this is the world I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person in that gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women, too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost.
1: That's such a powerful and beautiful, beautiful poem, prose poem.
0: Ah, You know, it is so, of course, so poignant to where we are at this moment there's such a division and you know there's a part of me that's like well wait a minute I go out to nature and diversity is what makes nature so fabulous why can't we emulate that very diversity
1: hmm and open our heart completely to all of life's possible experiences
0: Oh, gosh, and it's from the diversity, isn't that where, at least for me, that's where I keep learning stuff. You know, like, I got to the point, like, from teaching African dance and going to listening to music from other cultures, there's all these other cross rhythms, and there's a part of me that's not that I want to disparage 4-4 rhythm, but it's like, you know, will we ever get tired of 4-4 rhythm? My God, there's so much other stuff happening on the planet.
1: Yeah, that's where Indian music really uh, is so wonderful.
0: Yes, exactly. I can't tell you how wonderful these conversations have been. It is such a pleasure to talk to someone who's clearly on the same page. My guess is if I put your feet to the fire, you could write your own version of Curriculum of the Soul, and it would be just as useful as anything I've ever done.
1: But I'm not really much of a writer, so I like to leave it to people like you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're so sweet. Well, instead, I think you're doing it in your own version from the interview show, which is fantastic.
1: Yes, I'm using my gifts in in the best way I know how at this point, and I'm also getting great joy out of it. And I have to say, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. It has flown by so incredibly quickly, and we'll have to do it again.
0: Oh, you know, I would be always open to that and to be able to talk to someone who is already well-versed in this terrain. Is such a pleasure because I don't get to do that very often, really, anywhere. You know, I have a group that I created here, and we meet once a month, and we kind of do it on that level. It's mostly older women. I wish there were more men who would participate, but that seems to be changing a little bit, so that's nice. So these are the conversations that really keep things moving. You know, the, it's really, you know, to talk about politics or economics or all that, uh you know to me i get bored pretty quickly i want to talk about so where's the really movement and how is it showing up in people's lives and of course that's why the book is there cuz i asked you know i think i at one time somebody was doing their own group somewhere i think down in albuquerque so i literally called all of the questions i present in my own book to you know and put them down it was six pages worth of questions i said there here's your study group just play with these questions and see how it's showing up for everybody, and this is where we get to learn from each other. Because it's not like I, you know, I still go through suffering, I still get sick, I still do all the goofy things that human beings tend to do, and see how grateful I can get through this whenever I'm put put out of balance.
1: Yes, that's an important part of humility, and we have 30 seconds, so how can people find your book?
0: Easiest is, you know, you can go to... Amazon for instance and just do curriculum of the soul but you'll need my lately I've noticed I had to have my name but the quicker way is just go to the actual website com, and there is a link there that takes you directly to it on Amazon of course if you want to get in touch with me directly I'd be happy to sell you a book directly and I can write a little note in it and you can do that again through the website that's probably the easiest thing and Then see what you think. Um, People seem to like it. You know, I'd love to be challenged at some point by somebody say, you know, Rick, uh, how come you didn't do the chapter on hope or something like that? And that's a whole other conversation.
1: Thank you again so much, Rick Halterman. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.
0: Thank you, Tonya.
1: Bye-bye.